0: new books and education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Heather Shoemaker about her book, It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, Renegade Rules for Raising Confident and Creative Kids. Heather, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I was wondering if we could begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um- I've written a couple books about early childhood and parenting. Uh, the first one is It's Okay Not to Share. And then this um one you mentioned, It's OK to go up the slide is a natural follow on to that one. And then I also write on other topics. I have a book about the environment coming out in April called Saving Arcadia and it's focused on the Great Lakes and land conservation. And then um someday I'm working on children's fiction, ghost stories, and pirate stories. So when I find a publisher for those, I'll let you know.
0: Which of your experiences, either as a child yourself or as an adult now, have uh, been most formative in shaping your views on childhood and how adults can best support kids uh, either at home or at school?
1: Right. Well, I was I was lucky because I was brought up in a... Um, preschool, and my mother was a preschool teacher for 40 years in Columbus, Ohio. And that school, which is called the School for Young Children, shaped so many of my views about um, young children. I went there as a four- and five-year-old myself, but unlike most kids who go to preschool and then kind of... Forget those early years; it gets hazy. Since my mother kept teaching there, I kept being brought back into the fold, and I saw at different ages how um, you know I, I assisted as a teenager. I came back in as a an adult and a parent to observe, and I saw how much respect was going on at that school. And I think that's um, also no fear of the kids, the kids' ideas of what to play. And this might sound like so basic course we're going to respect the kids of course we're going to trust they have good ideas to play but those two things um, really are a bit lacking in today's um, uh, early childhood scene and that's what I found so unusual about the school for young children so that school when I, when I became a parent myself and looked around for a school to send my um, kids to I thought I would find a preschool similar to the one I grew up with but The one I grew up with had boxing gloves where kids could have (laughs) rough and tumble (laughs) wrestling games. And instead of finding boxing gloves, I found a lot of chairs and tables. So I realized it was a little bit unorthodox, and it was a place where I felt so deeply respected. And that's something that I, I hear graduates of this preschool say. They never felt so respected in all their life as they did when they were in preschool there. So I wanted to share the ideas and the somewhat countercultural messages that come from that school because they really work with with child development in in many different um, uh, scenarios, home and school.
0: And I think the kind of respect that you talk about in your books is different, uh, like you said, than what a lot of people imagine when they think about showing or teaching respect in school. We, We talk about it a lot, but I'm not sure that we give kids respect in the sense that we view them as people whose present experience matters and who have their own unique interests separate from those of the teacher or parents that we need to, to honor and, and think about. Um, and right. I uh, think
1: you hit on a good point because respect often when I hear people talk when I hear adults talking about it, it seems to mean complete and immediate immediate obedience. <laughs> and that's what respect is, or it's making sure you call somebody Mr or Mrs. And it's those sort of outward forms of social respect rather than that deep emotional respect, which to me, respect is about what is this person's needs right now and how can I help meet those needs? And I'm not talking about a a child's wants and desires, because especially, you know, we are recording this in in December and sometimes kids wants and desires can be as as tall as the moon, but what are their basic needs and needs such as, being outside, um, you know, really basic needs. What are those needs? The the need to move their bodies. And that's what I hear a lot of, um, especially adult men, they reminisce and tell me, well, I was in trouble all the time as a kid because I had a need to move my body. And Mm -hmm. that they were labeled a troublemaker because they had to move whereas that's a basic need of the child. And the adults sort of set up a scenario where that basic need is thwarted and therefore you get in trouble. And instead of having the need met, it becomes um, you're in trouble because of your answering that basic call.
0: You talk about kids, at one point or another, everybody wants to go up the slide. And adults are so adamant about saying you can only go down the slide. So I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about that. Uh, why is this so important to kids, and uh, why do you think it should be more important to adults?
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> going up the slide is an amazingly controversial um, playground issue. And, you know, adults design the slides. Adults built the playgrounds, and they put them there and said, you know, thou shalt play and and do it in the way that we expect you will, which is up the steps and down the slide. But a child encounters the world, and, and play is sort of... Um, when they encounter a piece of playground equipment or a toy, it doesn't come with an instruction book. So um, even when they pick up a stick in the park, it doesn't come with, this is how you shall use it. And and so they approach whatever it is um, without knowing that there's a certain way to do it. And some of the things that they, if a child sees a slide, at some point they will go up it, and this is not something that just happens in, in our country, it happens in any country in the world. You go to Burma, you go to, you know, uh, you go to Boston. In this country, kids are going up slides and down them. So it's it's quite universal. They're seeking challenge. They're seeking fun and games with other kids. They're, they're trying out a new version of their bodies, especially in this early childhood time. They keep growing and changing and getting more coordinated, and they're always trying to test and see what can this version of my body do now. And by testing those out, um, they're actually learning to be safer because they're realizing their their bodily limits at that moment. Um, but one thing the adults really shut down is one, it sort of violates our sense of order. You know, mm. you should go up this way and down that way. But, but close behind that is just a, a basic desire to, to keep the kids safe and to avoid conflict. And we might think safety is uppermost in our mind, but I I would challenge that and say that we're actually more worried about other people judging us and the fact that the kids might have an argument. Um, But this is wonderful because anytime there's a, there's a disagreement about how a game should go. And again, that's all this is. One kid wants to go up. One kid wants to come down. If they both do it at the same time, there might be a collision and somebody might get hurt and it, it could even be a, you know, a bad hurt. So, we, we try to stop the potential conflict from even occurring in the first place. But it's so much um, richer learning if the kids, you can help the kids develop awareness of each other, which, again, is basic respect, and say, look, you want to go up, but so-and-so wants to come down. You know, what can you do? And they will come up with a solution that's often much more creative and, and um, bonds the kids more than a solution the adults would come up with. So the um, going up and down the slide conflict is, is something I, I encourage adults to embrace as much as possible because it's just one avenue for an area where kids can practice the skills of peace.
0: What makes adults so hesitant to indulge kids in, in these different possible ways of, of doing things, whether it's at the slide or a structure at home or a structure at school? Uh, I feel like we give a lot of lip service to the fact like we want kids to become critical thinkers. And uh, clearly, there are structures we're imposing upon them that they disagree with. And rather than sort of engaging with them in a back and forth that's, that really could produce some some really valuable thinking and serve them well in the long term, we, we we tend to try and shut that down.
1: We say this is the narrow path. And here's another example is think about a board game. You know, sometimes if there's parts and pieces that go to a certain board game. And often kids, um, they might play the board game the way it's supposed to be played for a while, but then they might take the pieces and move them away from the board game and have them interact with something else in the environment. And um, a lot of adults sort of freeze up at that point and, and feel as if, oh, we're violating this. This goes with this game. It can't be played with in another way. Um and I think it's useful in all these cases where the child comes up with an idea that violates the adult's sense of how it should be done, try to identify what is it that you're worried about as an adult. In my case, I'm worried that um, they might lose the board game pieces and they might not get back in the box. So let's find a way that we can address that concern and still let the kids go ahead with their own ideas. So zero in on what is the actual problem? Is there any problem with the way the child is approaching their play? And I I have what I call the renegade golden rule that you can apply to almost all these situations. Is the play okay? It bothers you, so what is it that's bothering you? And the renegade golden rule is um, it's okay if it's not hurting people or property. Mm -hmm. So ask yourself that question. And if you can find a way that okay, the play's all right, but maybe it's too exuberant. So maybe you need to change the location. That, that game's okay in this room or that game's okay outside, but not here. So sometimes you need a modification.
0: And I think you would acknowledge that it's okay for adults to be uncomfortable sometimes. Like those aren't bad feelings, but those should be unpacked. And why not right. uh, share those with kids, right? And, and see if right. you can address uh, the needs of both children and adults in the situations.
1: Right, and I think that's, that's critical because I'm a big advocate for free play, but free play doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. And it doesn't mean that the kids walk all over the adults. So again, respect is about setting limits that help everybody feel comfortable. So if the adults are something they don't like, maybe it's too loud, <laughs> you know. You can, it's okay to say, my ears are hurting. Those voices are so loud, it hurts my ears. Well, the kids actually don't want to hurt your ears, so but they want to be loud. And, and so can you have a place or a way that this could work? So setting limits is critical on both sides. And I think that's one thing we miss a lot with um, the adult-child relationship is we think as adults we have to swoop in and and be the judge and jury all the time. Um, That's why my first book is called "It's Okay Not to Share." We come in and decide you've had that toy long enough. Now it's so and so's turn. Whereas the kids can mediate their conflicts one on you know peer to peer, where a child can set a limit and say, "I'm not done yet," and learn these um, conflict mediation skills, standing up for their rights, expressing specifically what they don't like what the other person is doing and talking directly to that kid rather than saying, mom, dad, teacher, Mm -hmm. he's not, you know, and, and rushing for that, that help and that adult manipulation.
0: Parents or adults often take on this, this role of police officer slash judge, particularly when multiple kids are involved or multiple kids from multiple family. Why do you think adults, why do you think that's their disposition? Um, what what sort of informs our expectations for what a good adult is supposed to do um, when they're charged with the care of children?
1: Well, I think a lot of our nature is to, you know, um, make life enough orderly and non-chaotic and something that we feel we can cope with, um, not too messy. And um, um, a lot of it comes from our own childhoods where we remember the adults sweeping in. And so we think that's what we should do. Um, Life doesn't have to be out of control in this other method. It's just asking different questions. So if there's a a lot of kids coming up and there's a a conflict going on, you can can say, wow, I see a lot of kids are upset and just state what you see and let them start telling you and, and talking to each other about what's going on. You don't have to have eyes in the back of the head. You don't have to magically know whose fault it is. You don't have to be the judge. You can just say, wow, I see a lot of people are, are crying right now. Looks like something happened. <laughs> and let let it evolve.
0: How much do you feel like you're pushing back on modern parenting, I guess parenting in the 21st century? And then how much do you think you're sort of pushing back on parenting uh, you, like, could your critique, which of your critiques could have been offered in the nineteen fifties?
1: Yeah, well, pa- parenting has changed. I think um, quite a bit. I often find that the grandparents in the audience are the ones that completely recognize this style of parenting because it's um, it trusts the kids play a little bit more. They they were the generation that was used to throwing the kids outside and call for them at dinner um, mm-hmm. and letting them be around without any adults watching. Now, this is a little bit older than, say, early childhood, but they're, they're that sort of generation. If you, if you watch an old movie and you see a, a kid that's part of the plot, they'll walk into the breakfast table with a toy gun and nobody blinks an eye. They just say, sit down and drink your orange juice. You know, mm-hmm. it's not an issue. So it's a different... Um, they, they weren't worried that that kid would grow up to, to be on the front page of the newspaper someday, whereas today there's a lot of fear governing us, um, and I think we didn't know as much about um, child development and brain research and what kids really need from a, a physical and mental point of view as we, we've never known more about it than we do today. But we, even though we didn't have that the scientific knowledge so much a generation ago, we were just more willing to trust the kids' ideas and trust that the kind of play that they chose would be, would, would be good and would be fine. So there's, there's sort of a distrust of children's play ideas. Um, and I think also, that, you know, there's a rush to structure our children and kind of put, make them into little projects mm-hmm. and uh, not give them enough time to develop these um, free play skills and, and conflict mediation skills that come along when, when you give kids um, big blocks of time to play and, and interact with other kids
0: do you have any confidence that uh, our views on parenting are are sort of like a pendulum that swings back and forth? Or do you feel like uh, we need to be really vigilant now, or we're going to be even more hyper protective of kids in 20 years?
1: Yeah, I I think there's probably a bit of both Mm -hmm. already. There's people who've split off and are parenting very different ways. And, um, you know, many even following these, these, it's okay to go up the slide um, type of philosophies. And it, it starts a ripple effect. So once you get more and more people knowing about that, and that's why I wrote the books instead of just keeping it in one little preschool community, spreading the word, um, it, the more people you have parenting like that, the easier it gets and the more these ideas spread. And there's a lot of people... Um, following those ideas, but at the same time, the, the cultural media messages of, of fear and that are prompting, we're going to fall behind China, all those sort of, let's start academics early, those are very strong. They're coming from the politicians. They're coming from the media. They're coming from, if they're not coming from the parents, they're coming from the teachers. So it's all, it's everywhere. Um, and that probably um, will have to get worse before it gets better, but there's always pendulum corrections. Uh, but I think we need to be vigilant for the kids because otherwise, there's already starting to be a, a whole generation of, of young parents who don't remember um, good free play themselves as kids. Mm. They um, they weren't raised that way, and so they don't have those personal memories to draw on.
0: That's a, that's an excellent point. I guess uh, one thing I'm thinking about is might be most different for kids and their parents uh, today is our access to technology and the kind of technology that sort of informs every aspect of our lives. And, um, as a teacher, I would often note how parents um, would take a do as I say, not as I do sort of approach, particularly with technology. And, um, kids would have limited screen time if they had access to devices at all, but parents would be texting and emailing at the dinner table or watching hours of Netflix You know, and uh, so I'm wondering if you could talk about the role of modeling in parent-child relationships, as well as when it's okay not to model something perfectly, because there are uh, legitimate differences between adults and children.
1: You know, an adult can drink a glass of wine in front of a child and not have to give them some too. Um, Yeah, there are some differences, but technology is a huge difference between how kids are being parented today and and other days. And, and um, I think basically we aren't remembering to parent technology at all. We're just sort of, I'm going to use my device. I think most of us as adults can think, oh yes, I need to parent nutrition because if you go in the grocery store, half the aisles don't have real food in them or <laughs> not as nutritious food. So just the way we don't have chocolate cake for breakfast every day, although we could, we could go to the store and load the cart with chocolate cake. We understand there's an important value in modeling. Yes, we have vegetables. Yes, we have fruits. Yes, we have a balance. And trying to do that as much as possible in our daily interactions with kids and talking about, you know, Um, good food choices or whatever it is that we do with nutrition, but we don't really realize that we have to do something similar with technology. Um, It's just, um, again, basic respect is we need to, as adults, realize how much kids see us just glued to the devices. And we think we're only quickly checking an email or we're only quickly doing something. But it ends up being hours a day that they see our heads down and absorbed in another world. Um, So we need to, first of all, recognize that technology needs to be parented, not just for the kids. This is how much screen time you get. But for the parents, for the adults ourselves, Mm because it's almost more important how we're modeling it. Um, And here's a big one in early childhood or, or school is just pick-up time. There are very few schools that have a policy or a culture that um, encourages adults to leave those devices shut off in the car because at that moment of greeting and leaving is such an important social relationship and to model how it's done and that we're glad to greet each other at the end of the day, um, whereas a lot of people come in with the phone glued to their ears um, you mentioned meal times, mm-hmm. So finding certain times of day that we just make sure that we are treating fellow humans as, as fellow humans need to be treated, which means full attention at, at certain really important times. So in my book, um, It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, I have a section on technology, and one chapter deals with how we might navigate these issues with kids. Um, and, of course, it's interesting to write a book about technology because books take a long time to print, and then by the time you read it, you know, they'll have invented a new something by the time you finish reading the chapter. So I'm trying to do the the more the big picture and general ideas um, rather than a specific device. But, again, there's one chapter for how we might navigate this with our kids, but the other chapter, and I think equally or even more important, is how we set limits on our own um, technology use so that we can um, teach our kids healthy ways to interact in the world. And some of that means taking um, emotional breaks from screens, learning at what time of night do you turn them off completely, how often do you go outside, um, how do you take times of quiet and rest, because screens um, stimulate. And young kids' brains do not need constant stimulation. Um, In fact, adults don't either. How can we help create emotionally healthy humans? It's by modeling how to have a healthy um, relationship with technology.
0: I think you're challenging adults to engage in some pretty difficult work, right? Like uh, putting (laughs) putting their phones away, you know, um, engaging people in conversation, acknowledging that things aren't black and white and the world is made up of nuances, um, but adults may be too tired to, to like engage in those conversations. How do you counsel adults, parents or teachers to muster the willpower to make some of these changes? Uh, what advice do you offer them?
1: Yeah, well, it has to be greater than willpower. It has to be understanding, just just like nutrition, that this is important, just the way you learn, teach a child to cross the street safely. But this is a huge part. It's going to be an increasing part of our children's lives. And we are setting lifelong habits for them to develop into um, um, emotionally competent children. I think interactions with technology is mostly about emotional well-being. Um, and the younger the child is, the um, the less they have any need to interact with technology at all. It's not mm-hmm. as if they're going to fall behind. I think a lot of, um, I know you've worked in Silicon Valley, but a lot of the Silicon Valley executives had very um, low-tech home, home lives and encouraged old-fashioned kinds of play and family discussions and book reading. They know that the kids, if they develop these kinds of skills, can do anything in the tech world once they're older. But... Um, I think some adults get mixed up and think that being able to whiz around on a computer is a higher level skill and kids need to develop that early. It's actually the opposite. Uh, but yeah, I'm asking adults to be thoughtful um, about their use of technology when they are around children particularly. And of course, when they're, however they use it themselves is important for their own lives. But if they're interacting with kids, and, um, it's even more critical.
0: You talk about kids having some some rights, and among those are a right to recess, a right not to participate in certain classroom activities, a right not to have to do homework every night. And so I was sort of anticipating that you might get two kinds of responses from more skeptical readers. The first being that, uh, you know, children shouldn't have the rights to opt out of these things because they're too young and inexperienced, and so uh, they should have to yield to adults who are trying to act in their best interests instead. And secondly, maybe adults agree that those structures are good. Homework is almost always good, or kids should have to miss recess if they, you know, forgot to bring in their permission slip for the field trip or whatever it is. And and so I'm sort of wondering how you might respond to those critics who are skeptical about kids making decisions for themselves or about uh, these areas in which the decisions could be exercised.
1: Right. Well, I think actually the issue here is not so much kids making decisions for themselves. I think kids need time to do that um, during their free play time, which recess should be, um, and other times of day. But the, the overall structures which you're getting at, should you have homework, should you even have recess, how long should it be, all those sorts of bigger structural issues. The kids don't usually get to set up um, the school day, for example. I haven't yet met one where the um, the kids would design the day, although my 8-year-old um, my said he went to a summer day camp this summer, and he said, it was great. It was recess, then snack, then recess, <laughs> just the way school should be. So he might design it like that, a little bit of food thrown in. Um, but I think what we need to do is um, – Look at the existing research because there is a lot of studies out there that, that if we keep an open mind, maybe we think, well, I've always done it myself. I had homework as a kid or I did this or that. Um, but if we look into what the research is finding and we're willing to say, oh, hmm, um, and change our minds a little bit because this is what we're finding. They've done, um, a lot of studies about homework, for example, and, um, They're all slightly structured differently and so on. But looking at a cumulative of 180 different studies of homework, what they found is that the academic benefits of homework are really age-dependent. So there's some benefit in the high school years if it's not too much. Middle school years, barely statistically significant. And then when you're down at the elementary level, what they're finding is no correlation at all between time spent on homework in elementary school and academic benefit. So when you look at those um, sort of stark results, you think, oh, the younger it goes, the less value it has. Mm -hmm. Um, There are people who say to me, well, uh, but we need to get them starting homework in kindergarten, which a lot of kids do have homework, even in preschool, "um, in order to develop good habits and Mm study habits and responsibility. Well... (laughs) If you interact with a kindergartner, it takes a lot of responsibility to bring home two mittens and a hat and a lunchbox and all the basic parts of life. There's a lot of learning about responsibility. It takes responsibility to feed the cat or whatever your household chores are. And there's classroom responsibilities that can, there's so many ways we can. Foster responsibility, and and homework doesn't have to be that. But also, if the academic benefits of homework are really only kicking in in high school, then you can easily use sort of 7th and 8th grade as a practice ground for helping kids develop uh, a sense of their personal study habits and how they can start remembering assignments and, and all of that. Because actually doing the homework isn't as challenging often as remembering doing it without being told to and turning it in. Those are those are a, sort of a separate set of brain skills. Um, but we don't need to practice at this moment getting ready for the old age home. We don't need to practice getting ready for moving into assisted living, even though someday that may be a skill that we need to mm-hmm. to take on. Uh, It's just meeting the needs of the child at the age that they are now. And if we meet those needs thoroughly and well and respectfully, they will be ready for the next step when it comes.
0: As you're taking this message to both parents and teachers, I'm wondering uh, which of your pieces of advice are most quickly embraced by those adults and which ones do you receive the most pushback on? And is there a difference in the way you, your message is received by teachers and parents?
1: Uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, layers to that question. I think that um, with both the books, the ideas that really people pick up on quickly are the sharing idea because people are sick and tired of being the judge and jury all the time, and this is an easier way for them, and it teaches so many better um, skills for the kids. So sharing is one that gets pretty immediate results, Um, and people are delighted they can implement it pretty quickly with even their two-year-olds. So it it really works well, um, and people like to take that one step. Um, Another thing I find people find is that um, with recess and homework, those are the big ones for the, the school years, it's a matter of realizing I have a voice. I thought this was wrong that my first grader didn't have recess or only had 10 minutes at the very end of the day instead of breaking up the day, I thought it was wrong. Something seemed off, but I didn't trust my gut and realizing, Oh, the research is saying that kids learn so much better if they have these breaks during the day and giving courage to go and and talk to someone. And usually if you have that courage, you you find that there's a lot of other kindred spirits. Um, You're not the only one feeling this way. And I I found that also with, with the homework is, Sort of a light bulb going off of people think, and teachers and parents both. I wouldn't differentiate it on this, of saying, "Oh, I didn't realize that this was even something we could question." Mm. Um, it just seemed like it—it's it, the law somehow that nice. you could actually say, um, it, if you're if you're a parent, you could. Talk to the teacher and say, this isn't working for our family. Here's how we're going to support our kid in off school hours. What can we do? And um, in some cases it just takes one voice speaking up for the teacher to start um, reevaluating themselves. There's a lot of teachers reevaluating and questioning um, their past uses of homework.
0: I'm wondering if you could briefly comment on what have been some of the biggest rewards you've had with with this lifestyle or parenting choice. And what are the challenges you're grappling with every day?
1: Yeah, I have, I have two children and I, um, what's interesting for me is that although my kids provided some great anecdotes for the, <laughs> for both books, most of the philosophy, um, was sort of, um, inspired before they were born. I started uh, writing and researching the first book when my first child was only three months old. So, um, it, it, unlike some people who write the book based on this is what my kids <laughs> did and I'm going to therefore create a philosophy out of it. I had the the early childhood background from the school for young children to start with and then the, the kids were handy examples. I think what's interesting is that um, it's I, I have the full faith in, in this approach because um, and it's a long-term approach. It's not a There may be some tools that can help on a daily basis and that will make your life easier, but it's a multi-year, long-term relationship. And to have trust that if you do this with this respectful approach year after year, that the the kids will come along and and, and grow into the moral development and the emotional development that you're hoping for. and I've seen generations of other families go through this at the School Fing Children. And so it's not a, um not thinking, oh, this kid will never grow out of this stage. It's a, a faith that you know that this might be tough right now, but you will, if you keep working on, on these levels, you will be able to, um have a, a close and better relationship year by year. So I think that's what I get most out from my kids. Plus some of the humor. <laughs>
0: Well, Heather, I've taken up a lot of your time, so I just wanted to ask you one more question, and that is, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how we can follow your work and what you're working on next?
1: Yes. Um, well, I have I have a Facebook page called Heather Shoemaker Writer, and I have both a blog and a podcast. The podcast is um, called Renegade Rules. It's on iTunes and Stitcher, and the blog is... Um, You can find on my website, Heathershoemaker.com. So there's lots of places. I also do a lot of speaking. I get invited to speak at early childhood conferences, both in the U.S. and Canada. Um, And I do um, Skypes into book clubs. If somebody organizes a book club, we can have a little um, face-to-face time answering questions and so on. Um, So that's how you can get hold of me. And um, the next book that's coming out is A Departure from um, Parenting, and it's and a book about land conservation in the Great Lakes. The book is called Saving Arcadia and it will be out in April 2017.
0: Fantastic. Um, so we'll look forward to that release as well. Um, Heather, I want to thank you for being on the show today.
1: Well thanks so much. Really glad to to be here and um glad to know that you and your wife have, have used the books quite extensively in, in um your school and professional and family life.